Greetings, travelers! Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow! Today, we are exploring a new type of hero, the saint and the dragon slayer himself, Saint George. If you've stepped foot in the United Kingdom, then you've seen about 500 pubs named after him, so it's time to explore his story. However, despite how popular the story is for the English, who refer to him as Sir George, the actual origins of the story come from Greek and Georgian manuscripts. The earliest records are from the 5th century, where the texts describe his martyrdom and his turmoil with Emperor Diocletian. Towards the 12th century, we see the motifs of St. George saving a pagan princess and slaying a dragon. We have used tons of sources today, one of which comes from the 11th century with historian E. Privalona and Kevin Tutti, which looks at frescoes, manuscripts, and translations following the miracle narrative. We also use the more popular version of the story from the 12th century from Golden Legend or The Lives of Saints by Jacobus de Vorgain and translated by William Caxton. Like most other stories, this story also is loosely attributed to epics like the Georgian romance, Amaran Derijanian, and Persian texts like the Shahnameh. This is a pretty iconic story that we have going today i think at least in my mind it is the definition of the knight you know slaying the dragon and then saving the princess like i'm sure it shows up elsewhere in stories but to me this is just everything about the story is so textbook it just feels like um that it, it's got to be one of like the firsts to do this um and so many stories kind of copy off of it afterwards of all of these classic fairy tale elements. Yeah, definitely in the Western world, this is one of the key founders of kind of the trope of the hero saving the princess from a dragon, that whole damsel in distress kind of story arc. But for all of its like tropiness here, it doesn't even end with him being with the princess. He just kind of moves on too. I'm not sure <laughs> if we should talk about the ending, but I found that a little surprising because like I said, so much of this is just textbook. And then for that ending to be like, how it goes and then he's like yep i'm gonna leave bye i got other things to do goodbye (laughs) excuse me according to the trope document here you need to marry her it's like stop trying to shrek this i need you to follow the happy ending storyline yes okay let's take it from the top here people (laughs) but i do think in like some of the adaptations when it's sir george like i think that does happen they do fall through with the um, the, by the playbook and just say, and then he marries the princess. But yeah, it's not exactly the way it goes in the original text. I mean, that's the interesting thing about stories like this is you, when you trace them through their timeline, you can see how it's evolved to match kind of what other stories are doing during the time. So obviously in some of its earlier forms, it's a bit more simplistic. It's a bit more focused on the actual miracle itself, on the act of God, on the act of Saint George. And then you have elements of more folktale coming in later on where the princess and the dragon um, have a bigger pl- part to play. And then obviously then you tend to more the fairy tale where you have the hero rescuing the princess and then marrying each other and happily ever after and all of that. So it's always interesting to me to see how these stories change and then the versions that we read when we're researching versus the versions that we kind of know from growing up or that we see, you know, inscribed on the side of pubs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine if you just brought saint george to life right now and be like this is your legacy you're on every pub here and this is just all you're remembered for like how would he react 
<laughs> he'd be like okay cool let's go for a drink do you think they'll let me drink for free if my name is on the side of the building oh my gosh i think he would if he could somehow prove it i think people would be very fine with giving him a free drink but i mean he probably wouldn't like it like i imagine um imagine alcohol has changed over the years maybe <laughs> in terms of taste based on like ingredients used and how we're growing crops now they have kept the the recipe pretty consistent so maybe it's maybe it's fine <laughs> That's for a different podcast to explore the history of beer and breweries. And actually, we do talk a lot about beer and brewery in our or luck of the leprechaun uh, episode. We're not a stereotype, I swear. It just comes up in the story. OK, we do talk about whatever we say to let help us sleep at night. We're so sorry to all of Ireland. We didn't mean it. The other interesting thing I want to note before we, we get started is that St. George, like the actual historical figure, died in 303 AD. But the earliest text we have of this story is from the 5th century. So um, there's a bit of a jump from when uh, he actually lived and when the story got to, when it was first recorded. Yeah, and it's always so difficult with stories like this is because it's always the earliest known, but there might have been other things that have been lost to us. It might have been an oral story first. So we always try to be very careful with the way we describe some of these earlier origins because if there are earlier ones it could have been that they were destroyed they've been lost to us or that they were solely oral stories that were told and then eventually it got written down or it got depicted onto church walls so much of what we know is based on the written record as opposed to the oral record so there might have been a completely different tale and this is just a broken game of telephone <laughs> It's always interesting to figure out how much of it is a broken game of telephone. But the fun thing about legends is that it's usually based on something. You don't know how much it's been altered since, but there's usually some historical thing that actually happened, or in this case, some person that was actually there. But like you might have changed everything else about it. But legends have this interesting bit where there's usually like a kernel of truth. We might never know what that is. It might be a theme or something, but it's interesting nonetheless to see how legends um, come and go. Careful, Fox, a dragon quickly draws near. He claims this podcast as we tremble in fear. He kills all who approach and all who dare. We might need more than our wits in a prayer. But if we have faith in the will to fight, surely we can spare the young this night. So gather travelers, Christian or pagan, as we tell the tale of St. George and the Dragon. A long time ago, there was a city in Libya named Salim, and near the city, there was a shimmering lake, so big that one could mistake it for the sea. This was the source of fresh water for the city and surrounding farmland. But one day, a great dragon appeared and claimed the lake as its lair. Understandably, the citizens were not thrilled about this development. I'm going to have to pause here because I have... What might, for, well, for me, I'm like, this is an interesting fact, but I hope to other people it's also interesting. I'm here for it. One thing I noticed while reading the different variations of the story is that location is so interesting because you can almost trace the story based on how and where the authors choose to place it. In the earliest Georgian text, the story takes place in a city called Lacia or Lacia, ruled by a king named Selenos. Some of the Greek texts, they also refer to the city as Lacia, but they have various spellings and they change the name of the king. And then we also have the best known version, which was the Lives of Saints. And in that one, they named the city Selene and then the location is moved to Libya. So 
It makes me wonder how much of it is mistranslation, how much of it was someone read the name of the city and was like, oh yeah, that's in Libya. Just a fun fact for you about the geography of this tale. <laughs> geography is always interesting in this because, um, one, if they give a specific like location like this, there's usually a reason behind it. But like we've said in previous tales, sometimes stories like this, they get changed when they're told in a new region. Like mm -hmm. someone will hear it in one town and they'll go to another town and then they'll change things to be relatable to like the new town they're in. So we don't really know if that's kind of what's happening here. If they're just like, oh, we're telling it to a different audience. We want them to understand better or want them to make it feel more connected to them. So we're going to change just like the location. But the fact that they give specific locations, even if they're kind of a little all over the map, is still very fascinating. It gives us insight as to where the story has gone or kind of how it's traveled, at least. Yeah. And I know a lot of people get really worked up at the moment because there have been just an influx of retellings of fairy tales, myths, legends, everything from the Greek legends following the popularity of the Song of Achilles and then everything following that. People have kind of been like, we're telling the same stories over and over again. But that's kind of what these folk tales, fairy tales and legends are. It's the same story being retold yeah. over and over again. So it's just if an author chooses to write about, let's say, the 10th book on Achilles or about the Greek gods or about Cinderella. It's all part of this collective that we have on folktale and fairy tales. It's just what we do as humans, I guess. We retell the same stories with the same tropes, the same stock characters. So I think it's just interesting to see how people add their own twist to it. Sometimes it's just as simple as changing a couple names and being like, ah, an original masterpiece. I once had a friend who I was telling him I was rereading like the Harry Potter series at the time. And mm -hmm. he just looks so dumbfounded. He's like, why would you like read all of that again? Like you already know it. Why do that? And I'm like, well, I just enjoy like reliving the same story. Like it's fun to me. And I'm like, it's the same reason you rewatch like a movie. And he's like, I don't rewatch movies. And then I stared at him like, well, why would rewatch a show? He's like, I never rewatch shows. And I'm just staring at him like, why do you not enjoy things a second time, man? Like what the <laughs> heck? I finally cornered him like, do you listen to a song once and never listen to it again? And eventually that did him in. He's like, oh, no, I like listening to songs again. Like, OK, we're on the same page now. Yeah, I mean, there are some people who are very strict about like, oh, I'll never watch the same movie twice because there's so much to watch or oh, I'll never read the same book twice because I know what happens. But I feel like there's a comfort in knowing what happens or in joining a world that you already know. Because sometimes with book series specifically or movies or even TV shows, you don't know how it's going to end. And Game of Thrones is my favorite example of this is that <laughs> with the book series, it hasn't even finished yet. But with the TV series, the ending kind of made it unwatchable for me. Like the rewatchability of it has gone completely down. So if someone was starting it new and they'd be like, oh, is this a good series? And they look online, they see all of the hate for kind of last season. They might not bother. So some things don't have rewatchability, but I think there's a great mm -hmm. comfort in going back to a world you know and then being surprised about things you forgot that happened in the story or revisiting a character. So I think it's quite cute to find comfort in that, I guess. Not everything needs to be brand new every single time. And if you like just consuming new things like all the time, like that's fine. Uh, but your brain does really like taking in the same content a second mm -hmm. time it is good for relaxing it's also i find very helpful when looking at stories like you get to analyze the themes better there's so many movies or shows i've watched and like the second time around i catch so much more of 
either a joke that's happening in the background or context to a conversation I had before, or I'm just, now that I know where the story's going, I can kind of see a tragic downfall or something. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I can just observe more. And that's, to me, that's the fun of it. But if that's not your cup of tea, then that's that's fine. But even just between the two of us, we both established, we'd like hearing these stories again and again. <laughs> so as much as it can feel like tiring, especially if this is the 10th book to come out this year for Achilles, just say, but for you, it's maybe the 101 version of that story you've heard, then maybe you're getting tired of it and you just need to get take a break and read something else for a bit. But yeah, where are we? We're talking about St. George. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Back to St. George and not our book tangent. Well, actually, we'll go back to the city of Selene that is currently having an issue with a dragon moving into its lake. Immediately, the king mobilized all the soldiers and set out to slay this evil dragon. However, once the soldiers saw the dragon and heard its mighty roar, they grew frightened and ran away. Not that it did them much good, for that night, the dragon attacked the city with its venomous breath. The people panicked, for they knew they could not fight the dragon, and it would only be a matter of time before it destroyed the city. So, they decided to offer two sheep to the dragon every day in order to satiate the creature. And for a time, this worked. But soon, the city ran out of sheep, but the dragon was still ever-present. Gosh, it's like nobody has had a pet before. If you keep (laughs) feeding it, of course it's going to come back for more food. Yeah, they were like, the gods demand a sacrifice. And the dragon was just flying by. And he's like, ah, I guess this is a nice place to stay. (laughs) Yeah, the people are nice. They're just giving me free food every day. Like, yo, I was just coming up with a complaint for the king about some of the taxes happening here. But man, I think I like this place. At this time, the king made a decree that all young children and youth will be entered into the world's worst lottery ever, where the winner would then be offered as tribute to the dragon. And when they say all the children, they mean all. No matter their status, whether they were the poorest of the poor or one of those snobby, preppy noble kids, all would be entered into this game of chance. I love a good sacrificing youth story as much as anyone else. And if anyone is still interested in the Shaname, which, you know, we've just finished covering, this is very reminiscent of the kind of story about the demon king, Zahak, who had serpents on his shoulders that needed brains to survive. And essentially, two regular men, who we will call heroes, chose to give him one human brain and one sheep brain mixed together for the daily sacrifice instead of two human brains, which is, you know, still a sacrifice of a human, but at least it's 50% down. Um, And then if you're a bit more nerdy like me, it's also cool to note that the Georgian word used to describe the dragon here was the same word used for Zahak's demons in the Georgian translations of the Shaname. So there's that extra bit of just similarity here. And then, of course, there are tons of just worldwide stories of human sacrifices, with some of the most predominant ones being in the Grecian stories. We all have our favorite sacrificial stories. Mine is currently the tribute to the Minotaur which included the Athenian prince Theseus. And of course, we all know about Theseus and his exploits. And then, of course, that led to another story, which was the Hunger Games. So it's all a circular kind of storytelling method. Yeah, when writing this up, I couldn't help but think of the Hunger Games in this moment of just the the awful lottery that they're entered and everyone kind of looking on. The only 
big difference is that there's a chance to survive in the Hunger Games. And this, it's like, nope, you are just food. Like, that's that. <laughs> I guess instead of fighting the dragon, it makes more sense to kind of temper it and give it one child. So it's always about, you know, the philosophy of the greater good. It's never easy, though, when you're sacrificing youth because then who's going to replenish them? You end up with so right? many. I feel like in this case, it would almost make sense to sacrifice older people. Yeah. Well, it's still not it's still not, you know, it's not good. But if yeah. you're getting rid of all of your young population, you're going to end up with an aged population. They're setting themselves up for failure in the long term. But even more than that, they do not seem to have any plan of escape or actually dealing with the dragon. Like, again, if you just keep feeding the pet, it's going to just keep coming back and won't know what to do afterwards when you stop feeding it. It's you got to have a bigger end game here than just <laughs> otherwise you're just slowly killing off your population instead of it happening in one night and that's it. Yeah, I mean we always like the logistics of sacrifice are so interesting to me because in like a lot in a lot of stories we do see the imagery of the king or the people choosing to go the sacrifice route instead of fighting or going the sacrifice route instead of relocating or running away and Personally, I don't really see the benefit of doing the human sacrifice option as opposed to relocating or at least trying to fight because it's like a slow, painful death as opposed to an immediate one. Right. Um, and then also, I guess, you know, just relocating is not easy, but the option of either relocating and saving, you know, your family or sacri- or potentially sacrificing one of your kids to a dragon, I feel like the options are kind of rock and hard place, but one of them is a little bit better than the other. It might also just be an issue of people being like, well, I'll deal with this when it, like just sticking your head in the sand and kind of going, I'll deal with this when it becomes a problem. So as long as it's not their kid, they don't care. And then by the time it is their kid, it's too late to do anything, so. And in this case, it's not the collective making this decision. The king has decreed it. So Mm -hmm. you can at least give the people here a bit of a pass. They're, They're having to go along with what the king says and the king is just afraid and not, sure what to do so he comes up with this dumb decision um so we got another king here with questionable morals and everything (laughs) but that's not what we need to focus on right now because the fact is that he decreed this and it came into effect and so they accepted this this awful raffle happened every day or it depends on the, the the translation some say it happens every week some say it happens every day um Somewhere in between those two things, they they do this continuously. And so days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months. And the angry, anguished citizens became cold and numb to this whole process, as one by one, child after child, youth after youth, were delivered to the dragon. Eventually, the king's own daughter was selected. The king was devastated. And just, you know, shocked that this could happen to him. Surprised Pikachu face. (laughs) And he begged the people to spare his daughter. He offered all of his gold, silver, servants, his palace, or anything they wanted if he could just keep his daughter. But his pleas fell on deaf ears as people had no mercy for the king that had sent their own loved ones to the dragon already. So they flat out refused this offer. Defeated, the king accepted this fate, but begged that he could have eight more days to say goodbye to her. For some reason, the people did agree to this request, 
Whether they did have some mercy or maybe he did bribe them for this time, the text doesn't say. Either way, after the eight days, the king dresses his daughter up like a bride before sending her off to the dragon. Now, it just so happens that at this time, a knight known as St. George was passing through the area. See, Georgie boy here had been released from his service under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, and he decided he should probably check in with his mom or something back in his hometown of Cappadocia, which today would be found in modern-day Turkey. So George is riding his horse, minding his own business, when he sees a beautiful maiden weeping by a lake. Being the archetypical knight that he is, he rides up to her and asks, what is wrong? At first, she simply refused to tell him anything, saying the story will take too long to tell and that he should leave quickly before it's too late. But George refuses to leave a damsel in distress and insists she tell him what's going on. Reluctantly, she tells the tale of her city and the dragon and how she must be sacrificed to save her people. She asks him one more time to leave so that he may save himself, but he vows to protect her from this evil dragon. So he sits by her and waits, but it's not long until the huge dragon emerges from the lake. George took the initiative and charged the dragon with his spear, sinking the spear deep into the dragon's side. He turns to the princess and asks that she toss him her belt. I mean, I feel like he could have done that while they were sitting and waiting, but in the middle of the action is also fine. We love a think on your feet kind of guy. It's not even like a Jason Bourne move where he's taking things around him and using it as weapons. It's like, hmm, this will take a while, but can you toss me your belt? Which, I don't know, would that belt be made of leather at this time or would it have been just like cloth? Like, I don't know how sturdy this would have been. On a princess, I guess it would have been leather because she's a bit more higher rank. That's true. So possibly leather. I just think it's funny that they were sitting together just kind of chilling and he didn't do anything. And then now that he's in the middle of a fight, he's kind of being resourceful. No pre-planning. No pre-planning. You're fighting a freaking dragon. Gosh, dang it. In D&D, you would need a whole party to do this and lots of prep work to handle it. And you're just like going to wing it on your own. Freaking paladins. <laughs> we love winging <laughs> I guess maybe he knew what was up. He's like, I could make a plan, but it's just all going to go sideways the moment it shows up. So I guess I'll just wing it. <laughs> but without question, the princess removes her belt and tosses it to him. Snatching the belt from the air, St. George said a quick prayer before leaping onto the dragon's back. He tied the belt around the dragon's great neck and immediately the dragon became docile, tugging at the belt George and the princess led the dragon back to the city. The people were amazed and frightened of the dragon being in their city. St. George told the people, Fear not, rather stand and see God's deliverance. He then called all the people to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And once they had, only then would he slay the dragon. Because everyone knows that subtly threatening people is the best way to get them to join your religion. (laughs) Well, St. George was one of the crusading saints, so this isn't far off from what he's probably used to. Yeah, it's just it's just so weird because he's such like a paladin, like, I'm going to do justice and I'm going to save people and do good. And then he's like, you know, I could leave this dragon alive if you don't do what I say. It's just like, what the heck? 
fuck is this turn, man? Well, I will talk about this a bit more in my five fantastic finds on saints and how they've kind of switched from these heroic people who've just been do-gooders. And when you think of saints, you don't really think of them as fighters or paladins, I guess. But a lot of them, that's what they were. They were essentially paladins. They were crusaders of more so of God, of Christianity. And so it's a bit difficult to kind of separate them from that. And it might be a reason why in the British versions, it's Sir George, because he has kind of a bit more secularism to him. He's not related strictly to the religion. He's just a knight. Um, and then we have St. George here, who is very much ingrained in the kind of religious communities. And it's not far off that a lot of our heroes so far that we've talked about have been really closely linked to religion. In the Shahnameh, we had our heroes who constantly referenced God, who constantly talked about their bond with God. And in the future episode that we'll do is going to be on the hero Beowulf. And again, there's lots of just religious iconography around heroes. So it makes sense for the time period that all of the heroes have some kind of chosen property from God. I think one of the things that probably stood out to people then and probably now too is that the heroes fighting for something more than themselves. Like whether you agree mm -hmm. with what they're fighting for or the God they're fighting for, I think we can all really appreciate the idea of someone not fighting just for themselves, but trying to fight for the greater good. In their case, it's like like a country and like a God that they're serving that will kind of deliver the people around them. So they are, even though I kind of jokingly make fun of him, in the way St. George, what he's really trying to say is like, I want to save you. I've saved you from this dragon. I want you all to be saved from like, you know, your sin. So like, please follow the God I believe in. Like, obviously it's threatening and I make fun of him, but in a way that's what he thinks he's doing, right? He thinks he's saving them again. It's, it's difficult because there is kind of a difference in the way that we thought back then, the way we think now. And back then it was kind of a bit more singular in terms of you follow the religion or you don't follow the religion. Either you're part of it or you're not part of it. And if you're not part of it, then you automatically become kind of this evil entity and even in the Shahnameh, where we have a mostly like Islamic or Muslim community, here we have a more Christian community. It's still the idea of if you're not part of our religion, then you are not like you are not on the side of good. And so it's a very kind of simple way of having a dichotomy of good and evil, as opposed to going into the complexities of people's lives and the complexities of their connections with religion, whatever yeah. it is. Um, the Crusades themselves, I think, from a historic perspective. I don't think, I don't fully believe that they were just about religion. It was also about land and power, but these kind of things always kind of mix and enmesh themselves. And you can never really be free of corruption, no matter if you're secular, if you're religious, it's always there. But in the case of this specific scene, I think it's, I still think it's really funny that St. George was like, I can save you from this dragon that I've brought to your city. Yeah. <laughs> if, you know, you, uh, you all follow my god. It feels a bit scammy from St. George's perspective, but a lot of the religions back then, specifically as well with the Greeks, a lot of it was you believe in the God and the God will save you. Because with the Greeks, we see it very often with the Olympians where they'll help deliver you, I suppose, if you give them a sacrifice. If you slightly inconvenience them, they'll send a dragon after you. If you're Odysseus, they might lock you on sea for 10 years. So the idea of gods being fickle and needing some kind of reassurance has always been a predominant theme in folklore and legends and myths. Yeah, and, and in terms of the Crusades, like, at least from my perspective, a lot of the time when things like the Crusades happen or any, like, holy fight happens, whatever 
god you're talking about it it usually comes down to like someone wanting political power and using mm-hmm. something that's very important to people which is religion to drive that home so especially the crusades it was a lot of people going oh i want more land hey jerusalem's probably available what if we just tell people we're taking back the holy city yeah religion is always a really good inciter of war yeah it gets people fighting yeah anyways that was a really roundabout way of saying yeah (laughs) (laughs) from his perspective he was still doing good even if he was threatening them at the time not saying that's a good thing that he was doing but that's the context. I mean, also, in terms of context, in the Georgian poems, um, he does, before he tackles the fight with the dragon, he does make the symbol of the cross and he calls on God to help him. And then it very specifically sometimes says, well, in some of the texts, it does say that God answered. So there's a very close kind of relationship between the dragon dying or being captured and the role of religion in it, and St. George specifically calling on God first, and then capturing the dragon. So it's never as simple as, oh, he wants them to convert before he'll save them, or, you know, he's a bad guy because he's doing that, he's a good guy because he's doing it, whatever it is, there's a lot of intermingling between the role, the active role, I think, at least that God plays in this story, depending on which version you read. Because in some of them, you can almost read as if God is the one that helped give St. George the power to capture the dragon. And in which case, to offer thanks, he would go on to convert the city. But in the miracle narrative, it's the miracle of St. George that he captures the dragon. And so it's the miracle of the fact that he captured the dragon that makes them convert. So it's seeing this miracle appear that makes them convert and not so much him telling them to do it. So it's very interesting to kind of to see like how it's addressed by different writers in different kind of countries as well. Mm-hmm. I would imagine St. George, one way or the other, would have attributed this to uh, mm-hmm. God just because that is his religion and he just did something crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, not not only <laughs> fight a dragon, but tame the dragon like that. That is a next level <laughs> thing. I think that is often forgotten, like especially when the the sir george version of the story that i remember reading as a child it was just like a fight you know uh sometimes the princess was involved in doing something but it was like it was just a fight and then it the dragon was dead like there was no mm-hmm. capture and then bringing it back to the city but i think taming a creature is much harder than just killing it yeah and i think this is where we see those kind of differences between some of our epic heroes and some of our religious heroes so in this case a saint and some of the saintly heroes is that they have that element of miracle surrounding their acts. They have that element of kind of this is something that an ordinary person or the strongest person on earth wouldn't be able to do. It's because it's been, you know, it's a divine intervention that's made this happen. And for a saint, and if we're talking about specific categorizations of heroes, that miracle narrative is so important to the story in some cases because it's what defines it as religious versus just him using his brute strength to kind of tame a dragon miracle or not the people quickly agreed to saint george's request and thousands of people were then baptized and then turned to christianity the people rejoiced and thanked saint george for freeing them from the evil dragon saint george's story would continue after all he was still on his journey home but that is where our story ends for today So yeah, that is the story of St. George. 
and the dragon. This is a classic tale of knights and dragons and princesses, and I love it because I am just here for the really tropey, like just textbook. Again, I attribute this to a lot of our classic archetypes surrounding knights and all that jazz. I think it's really fun to read uh, this story through again. Um, and it's a lot shorter than I thought it would be. Compared to that, my interest in this story is going to be a bit boring. But I was like, I saw a lot of pubs called St. George, sorry, Sir George <laughs> and the Dragon. And I was kind of like, there must be some folklore background to this. Like, there must be a story here. Because I've never actually heard the story of St. Sir George and the Dragon um, really before this. I just assumed it was a guy fighting a dragon. Might have assumed it was one of the Knights of the Round Table doing it. Even though Merlin said there was no St. George, I was like, hmm, this is probably something that's come from that those kind of stories. So it's interesting to see that it's not actually from Arthurian legend. It's from a completely different subsect of stories and legends. So always fun to see where these stories come from and why people name pubs after them. So yeah, you heard it, listeners. Tell us what pub you saw and its <laughs> name and we'll tell you the book. The Hare and the Fox. <laughs> Please don't actually. The Red Lion. I mean, if anyone finds a pub that's called Fox and Sparrow, please let us know. I want to see this pub. I think there's lots of magpies, not a lot of sparrows. Sorry. There are a couple foxes, though. Fox named pubs. I don't like talking to magpies, man. Yeah, they're kind of rude. They I mean, they do. They're, they're just so annoying. <laughs> I think I've been attacked by a magpie before, so I have a personal vendetta. <laughs> personal vendetta. I was just being cheeky. The dragon may be slain, but that does not mean we are done. Like good gamers, we know that after slaying a beast, you get to collect the loot. And today, that loot comes in the form of five fantastic finds. Number one. Often, we wonder why some tales on gods and goddesses are called myths, and others are considered sacred religious texts. Where do we draw the line? In the general sense, myths are traditional stories, and scholars often define myth as traditional stories that were believed as true and include a diverse cast, including gods, heroes, and monsters. These stories are important culturally and seek to explain a people's history. Over time, the idea of myth became seen as a fictional story, and some religions rejected the term in order to refer to their own sacred stories as just religious texts. However, Christian writers and scholars have made some attempts to broach the idea of Christian mythology which refers to the non-biblical legends centered heavily around Christian motives and themes. These stories are fantastical in the same sense as the Greek myths with heroes and monsters, such as the case of St. George and the Dragon, but also King Arthur and his knights, Parsifal, and even the works of C.S. Lewis, who believed in the idea of a true myth. It is important to mention that while the genre of Christian mythology is closely associated with Christianity and Christian themes, this branch does not include biblical stories or anything else that is considered canonized in the Christian faith. In all honesty, it is hard to tell if these stories were intended to be religious or if they are religious based on the context of the times, since the stories were written during a heavily religious period. Even poor St. George's story was held up for questioning in the 16th century by Pope Clement VII, who decided the dragon slaying was inaccurate and had it removed from the saint's official biography. No one is safe from decanonization. Number two. When I think of fairy tales, the first thing I think of is a knight in shining armor rescuing a princess much like what happened in today's tale. There is something about a hero overcoming impossible odds to rescue the damsel in distress that just seems to resonate with me. But I have noticed a trend over the past couple years that seems to spit on this trope as our society has empowered women and there is a distinct value in our culture to be self-sufficient. 
While I'm all for both of these things, the reality is I feel we are overlooking what makes this trope really work. Sure, in the classics, the damsel is often no more than a prize to be won, and could easily be replaced with a lamp for all her character really adds to the story. This is likely what people are thinking of when they spit on this trope. So to subvert it, people went, hey, what if we gave our damsel in distress a personality? Shocking, I know. But sadly, authors have a tendency of making interesting characters that suddenly lose all of their unique traits the moment they get kidnapped. This is often a result of the creator wanting to focus on the hero, but it's such a missed opportunity for exploring how the damsel character would truly cope when they have been taken captive. In the best case scenario, the damsel will make active attempts to escape their capture or gain intel from their enemies. Even if their attempts fail, we get to see their wits and resourcefulness on display and can maybe even surprise their captors once or twice. One good example of this is Lieutenant Rita Hawkeye from Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood. From the start of the series, Lieutenant Hawkeye is consistently shown to be the most competent and elite fighter across the board. And no matter how tough the situation is, she is nearly always composed and able to keep the bigger picture in mind. And that attitude stays with her even when she is unknowingly damseled. While she is never physically restrained like a traditional damsel in distress, she is still very much taken as a hostage to keep Colonel Roy Mustang in check. After being transferred away from her colonel's team, her keen instincts quickly clue her into the situation and the metaphorical knife to her neck from her new superior. If she was a traditional damsel in distress, this is when the distress ball comes in and loses her personality. But instead, she keeps a level head and even confronts one of her captors about his secret dual identity. Even while captured and unable to escape by herself, we get some really great, solid character exploration from both Lieutenant Hawkeye as she continues pushing forward even while damseled, and Colonel Mustang, who, for the first time in the series, was forced to cope without his right-hand woman. What makes this trope work so well is that no matter how self-sufficient a character is, they will always need help at one point or another, and that's true for all of us. It's a great reminder that we all need help sometimes, and the trope can show off how much a character can mean to others that they would go out of their way to help aid and rescue the damsel in distress. We get a fun rescue and we get to see how our heroes cope without the damsel character in the group and vice versa. Number three. Dragon slayers are a huge fantasy trope nowadays, but where did the story start? Let's head all the way back to some of the first dragons, which include Mesopotamia's Muhushu, the Nordic Fafnir, and the countless unnamed dragons depicted in art from all around the world. Some cultures saw dragons as gods, nature deities, or as monsters, but the idea of dragon slayers didn't appear in solidified form in the Western world until the Norse hero Sigurd. While the stories of Fafnir and Sigurd don't appear till later, there is a Swedish carving called the Ramsund carving from around 1030 AD that shows an account of Sigurd's deeds, one of which shows him slicing through a large serpentine creature. Following Sigurd is a figure of Beowulf, who is mortally injured by a dragon after a battle. In Greek mythology, we also have Cadmus, the dragon slayer, as well as Apollo's defeat of Python. And we can't forget our Shaname heroes. The dragon slaying trope goes hand in hand with dragon taming tropes, where the heroes work with the dragons instead of conquering them. These stories are more common in Asia, where dragons and the Naga were sometimes seen as neutral gods or creatures. Modern media likes to play with this trope and combine the two as we see in shows like Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, as well as other series like Christopher Poloni's Inheritance Cycle, Avatar Last Airbender, How to Train Your Dragon, and The Dragon Prince. 
Name a better love-hate relationship over time than monsters and monster hunters. Looking at you, Shrek. Number four. In the Western world, George is a pretty common name. In fact, in the past couple years, George has been the fourth most popular baby boy name in Britain and has been growing in popularity as a girl's name in the United States. But what is in a name? For a George by any other name would smell of, uh, well, something, I'm sure. The name George derives from the Greek Georgios, and it means farmer or earth worker. And while this name has existed for a long time, it only started becoming popular once the Christian church deemed St. George as, well, a saint. That's right, it's thanks to today's story that there are so many people named George. So, that's George Washington, George Lucas, George Clooney, all the King Georges, George Orwell, George R.R. R. Martin, George Weasley, George Costanza, the list goes on and on and on. The point is, if you know someone that is named George, you can probably thank St. George for that. Number five. So usually when we think of heroes, we think of people who just do good for the sake of good. They save the princess, fight the monsters, restore good, banish evil, and all for the simple price of praise and honor. Maybe even for the sake of legacy. It's like when social media influencers go on a reality show to gain more followers or popularity. This topic gets brought up a lot when discussing superheroes and how they can afford to be crime fighters if they don't already have private wealth. Sure, Stark and Batman can afford to damage their suits and pay their medical bills, but what about a superhero like Spider-Man? Some of us have bills to pay. So what about the legendary heroes who are work for hire or demand payment in exchange for their adventures? And we aren't talking about the trope where you save the king and he gives you bags of gold in his daughter's hand as a prize afterwards. We're talking about naming your price. George is our first obvious example since he demands the conversion take place or he'll release the dragon again. On a larger scale, even the gods get angry when they aren't paid for their dues. An example of the show me the money trope going wrong can be seen in the origins of the Trojan War with King Laomedon stiffing not just the hero Hercules but also two Greek gods, Apollo and Poseidon. The two great gods had built the great walls of Troy but were not paid by the king who found some or the other excuse to avoid payment. So, Apollo sent a great plague into the city, and Poseidon sent storms and waves to destroy it. Seeking an oracle instead of paying his bills, Laomedon was told that he would be saved if he sacrificed his daughter Hesione to a sea monster. Hercules and his crew were passing by, and Hercules offered to save the girl if only the king would exchange her safety for some of his prized horses. Of course, after saving the girl, Hercules was also stiffed by the king, and so he came back at a later date and ravaged Troy, leaving only the young Prince Priam alive at his sister's behest. I'm sure had the city refused to convert, George would have not had any hesitations about also creating chaos. After all, everything comes at a price. As always, if you want to see the show summary, notes, and the five fantastic finds, please check them out on our website, talesfromtheenchantedforest.com. If you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at FromEnchanted or Instagram at Tales from the Enchanted Forest. Or if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at TalesFromTheEnchantedForest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. So if, if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard here today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. We'll give you a big shout out and our eternal gratitude. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. Thank you.